I'm really delighted to be here today with Brad. Um, Brad has been a, a very um, frequent visitor on The Meaning Code. And Brad, for those people who have never met you before, I wonder if you could just give us like the 30 minute elevator pitch of, of what you do and um, 30 minutes sit in and <laughs> no, I, I should have said 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I could do yeah, that. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so many long Brad. elevator yeah, ride. Yeah, it would. <laughs> How big is that building? So my name's Brad and, uh, I've been involved with Karen's channel since she started it in the comments section mainly, but um, through the years, we've had some conversations and um, mainly like I, I brought in some insights, I guess, regarding measurement and uh, talked about how horse training really opened my understanding to a lot of uh, a lot of the concepts that are being talked in this little corner, talked about in this little corner. So and things that Peterson has brought up. Uh, so I kind of came here through a different um, different path than most people. It's not really academic, but more through training horses. So I thought and today- what, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a mechanical designer. So okay. I design okay. automation equipment and, and I do product design. So that's the other reason that we've had so many good conversations is because design is a big interest of mine, so. Mm. Yeah, creativity comes in many forms, doesn't it? Yes. And uh -huh. there's a lot of common threads yes. throughout. So. Gotcha. So today so, you had some things you wanted to talk about, Brad. You sent me yes. an email and, um, and um, it was uh, timely because you said you wanted to talk about implicit and explicit knowing. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I, last night I started reading this book by David Boehm called On Creativity which uh, I think he wrote in the 60s, maybe. And uh, this first, her first published in 1996, but I, I, but he must have written it much longer before. I think what they did is they went back through a lot of David Baum's interviews that he did with um, some artists and some religious thinkers and, bringing physics into that and then um then they made it into a book so it was published in 1996 but it has a lot of his ideas and it's in his own words and he's a remarkably articulate man and david Bohm's whole theory of physics had to do with the implicate and explicate order and what he meant by that it's very hard to get a picture of this but it's the idea that the entire universe starts out enfolded, all folded up, and then it unfolds. And each thing in the universe is enfolded and then it unfolds. And the whole universe is inside each thing that begins to unfold. <laughs> and uh, it's a very big idea to wrap your head around, but the implicate order would be the Enfolded, E-N-F-O-L-D, and then the explicate order would be the unfolded, the part that you can see. Mm. And uh, this book happens to be about his ideas about art and creativity, not so much about the implicate and explicate order. But, but I think there's a lot to be found in this idea of implicit and explicit. So I'm interested in what you've been thinking so as you were talking there, I really uh, think we should nail down what I mean by explicit 
Mm-hmm. Because when you when if you do a search on the internet, there's a lot of different definitions about this and implicit as well. But I wanted to just say, you know, get out what I think it means. So to me, the explicit are the things that are explained. So, and that could be through communication. It could be through our senses, um, you know, written text, things that are explained that we can um, engage with directly. Implicit would be more along the lines of intuition. It's what's implied by the explicit knowledge. So it's, it's not directly revealed to us we can tell it's there. Um, and so it's, a, it's two different types of knowing. Uh, I thought of kind of a, maybe a funny way of saying this, but so if you ask, if a man asks his wife, honey, what do you want for Christmas? And she says nothing. <laughs> she's saying something explicit, but she's implying something totally, totally different. Right. So it, it's a, uh, or like the saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. That's an implicit claim, right? So there's something that said, or if you see fire, or I'm sorry, you see smoke, you know there's a fire there. So uh, that's kind of, you know, we've been having a lot of discussions. I, I mainly just kind of lurk in the background and don't really engage too much, but um, listening to different people on this little corner talking about knowing, and you had a guest on the other day, and I was... I was actually thinking about this very deeply. I had a friend that passed away three weeks ago and him and I kind of danced around these subjects. And so it made me, it brought all that back to me, uh, back to the foreground of your mind. You know how that works? So, and then you had that guest on and I was just like, we need to talk about this because (laughs) because, uh, I just have to get this out. So, one of the things I wanted to share is a verse from First Corinthians, actually several verses, the whole passage. Is that something that I could share on the screen? Sure. Yeah, I set you up to share. Okay. Let me see here. I got my camera right in the way. There we go. Um, yeah, that's good. Can you see it? I can. So um, this is the love chapter. Everyone heard this at a wedding, I'm sure, at least once. But this is talking about agape. And I went back and I listened to our last conversation that you and I had. um, And it was kind of, I was trying to frame how agape is the lens that we look through. And that's uh, how we have communion with each other. That agape is is what binds it together. So there's a hierarchy. Agape is there, which is God in my mind. Um, And so that's what this chapter is actually about. It's about agape. So if I speak with the tongues of mankind and of angels, but do not have love, agape, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to charity, and if I surrender my body so that I may glory, do not have love, it does me no good. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
It is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It does not, it is not provoked, does not keep an account of wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's usually where the pastor stops at a wedding. But I wanted to focus on the end of this passage, but I didn't think it would really do much without the beginning part. So love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will, be, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. And this is the important verse here, I think. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love remain, these three but the greatest of these is love. So of everything that's said here, love is the, is the end game. That's, I can stop sharing here. Love is the end game. That's really what everything is about. It's about communion, communion with God, with his church, with our families, our neighbors, communion with our friends, communions with our enemies, communion with creation which really is a that's really important to me like god is in creation all the way down to the very bottom i think and he holds everything together maybe i should pull that verse back up i'm sorry um just so people can see it i gotta gotta look around my camera here so where it says um for now I see in a mirror dimly. And what, what my what my idea here is what I'm trying to share is that the explicit things, the logos, the reality that we're in, the things that, that we um, can sense, all those things are there to reflect the mystery so that you can see it, but you only see it dimly. I mean, the way it's worded here, it's like we're trying to see the face of God, but we're looking through a, a mirror dimly, and we don't, we don't see him face to face. I don't think we can. That's kind of the picture you see in Exodus with Moses on Mount Sinai, that, that he just he, he couldn't look upon him, and just be, being close to him, the, the, it was... Isaiah, you see that same picture where he's undone by being in the presence of God. But even more than that, it's just we can't comprehend everything. In our last discussion, one of the things that came out was uh, something Peterson says. Um, either nothing matters or everything does. Have you ever, you've heard him say that. We talked about yes. it. Uh -huh. you know, so. But if you think 
that through a little bit, you'll see that on both ends of that binary, there, there's a crushing weight of nihilism. If nothing matters, then you're crushed by that side. If everything matters, then you're crushed by the fact you can't know everything. So we only see part. We only ever see part. And it's, it's like knowing is like, why do we know things? It's so that we can see the, the implicit so that we can see love so that we can act in the world properly. That's the whole point of knowing. And that's kind of what the, the, the passage before talking about how knowledge passes away, language passes away, everything's going to pass away, but faith, hope, and love. Do you think that's interesting? <laughs> I do. I, I like, I really like what you said there where you said the whole point of knowing is to be able to see, um, see the reflection, not directly to see the reflection of his glory. Because if, if, you know, you, you said in, that we are crushed on both ends of that binary. And certainly, if everything matters, that's crushing, not only in the sense that we can't know everything, but it's such an immense responsibility right. to think that every single thing that I say and every single thing that I do matters. And I think part of that is because reason we lose track of that is that we don't have the historical view of our actions. We only see in the moment, or maybe we, we can look back on our past and we can see how something had some impact, but we have absolutely no idea what impact what we're doing this moment is going to have five years from now or a hundred years from now or 500 years from now. Right. I'm sure that Joseph had, no idea whatsoever when he was um, captured in slavery that he was going to end up sending saving two nations. Um, and even then, when he was in the midst of saving those two nations, he probably had no idea whatsoever that that story was going to become central to transforming millions and millions of people over countless generations. Right. And, and it, it's a gift that we don't know all these things, because if we knew them, we'd be terrified to move forward. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I thought the same thing. I and I was just going to bring that up, that it, it would change how we act and <laughs> would certainly, certainly affect how we attend to it, which would probably mess it all up. So that's uh that's kind of, I guess, the point about what I wanted to, to share. I'm going to stop sharing now, and then I can uh, get back. I just want to say one thing about a little bit earlier. You were talking about how God is in everything all the way down and how he holds all things together. And I, I just ran into something in this, um, in this book by David Bohm on creativity. It's on page 106 for anybody who has the book. <clears throat> I'm just going to read a paragraph here because sure. I think it's, um, he has a beautiful way of writing. He's talking about art. Um, 
The art of life as a whole, we have to be both creative artists and skilled artisans. We are thus always in the act of fitting an ever-changing reality so that there is no fixed or final goal to be attained. Rather, at each moment, the end and the means are both to be described as the action of making every aspect fit. This notion of fitting extends into all aspects of life, including even those that have been called moral or ethical and which have to do with the good, that's in quotes. The word good is indeed derived from an Anglo-Saxon root, the same as that of gather huh. and together, which means to join. And so it may be suggested that early notions of the good employed implied some kind of fitting together in all that man does. And I wrote down in the margin, he holds all things together. You know, God is good. He is the only one that is good. And, and the idea that it means fitting things together, I thought was just a beautiful picture. The fact that the Latin word bene, meaning good, and the word bellus, meaning beauty, are related in origin further, confirms the suggestion that this is generally how people may have looked on such questions. Recalling that beauty means to fit in every respect, we could say that such a significance of the good is still relevant today. In other words, the good is that which fits, not only in practical function and in our feelings and aesthetic sensibilities, but also that which by its action leads to an ever wider and deeper sort of fitting in every phase of life, both for the individual and for society as a whole. And again, in the margin I had written, context requires someone to judge the context. You know, you know people always say, oh, well, it depends on the context. Well, what that means is that somebody is deciding the context and and then there has to be a decider above that and a decider above that, right? Right, all the way so up. The whole idea of context implies that there is a judge of the context. And, um, you know, I've talked before about this idea of the artist, every stroke of paint that they choose, the choice is is what's going on in their mind in terms of how to make the painting what they want it to be but but because the painting keep the painting keeps changing with every stroke then the context is new with every stroke so that context is always shifting and the goal of the artist is to always find a way to fit that next stroke into the context as it is now and to bring about a new context so that there's this ever moving creative um, result that's going on with this always fitting everything has to fit and um, <clears throat> I thought that was pretty cool and then you know cool. it seemed to fit in with what you were talking about yeah because I was I was going to go on to this idea of um, how we stand back and reflect and so when you're fitting things together in a painting you do step back and mm-hmm you're reflecting on what's being implied by by the painting, I would suspect, right? And we do that yeah. with our lives. Well, 
the, the whole the building of the painting is making what's implicit explicit, right? It's taking this, the idea, and then fleshing it out, <laughs> building mm -hmm. it up so that it becomes something that other people can see and other people can reflect on. But the hope is always that what is being communicated is also being understood on the other side. And so to find a way to take something that's inside the artist that's so complex it can't really be put into words and make something that communicates that same idea or feeling to someone else who's looking at it, it it's not really that much different than what you do when you're designing, when you're doing mechanical designing. You have an idea in your mind. You want to build that design because you have an idea of what that design can do for people. And you need to make it in such a way that it communicates that goal to people and that they can actually use it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a reflection on the fitment and on a machine when I'm designing it at different stages. And then other people get involved too because they're electrical controls, you know, that do the programming and other, other people get involved to make sure it's going to fit together before it is actually built. But I'm, I'm, um, I guess I'm, I'm getting more and more convinced that even as we do this, it's still, it's like the idea of the creation implies a creator, that there's, there's still an implication in the painting that there's something left unsaid yes there's this, so there's um if it's done right you make it explicit enough that there's enough information there to point to something else that's implicit it's a reflection of of that implicit thing whatever it is a mystery maybe is the best way to say it it's uh but there, there's that implication that something else is still there so well, that's what engages the viewer. If that weren't true, then people wouldn't even bother looking at it. Because right, it's, it's already defined. Yeah, if it, I mean, as if it's right so now. obvious. But, but yeah. you know, it's an interesting thing. Even with a photograph, this can happen because a photograph, part of what makes a photograph a work of art is the choice of context that the photographer makes and the, the choice of where to look what to focus on, how much of it to include in the frame, so that when the viewer looks at it, there's still questions because there's there's more outside the frame than there is inside the frame. So there's plenty of room for contemplation. And even within the frame, there's probably more information than we can take in because, <laughs> because there's just a whole lot always more there than you can imagine, oh, right? Yeah, oh, sure, right. Yeah, yeah. When when you going back to like everything mattering, everything, and then every relation between all those things and all the different combinations of it, it's just it's unbe unbelievable how that explodes. So, mm -hmm. but you want you want to capture enough of their attention and focus to to convey something. So I was thinking about like uh, the parables. Jesus would say the kingdom of heaven, something mysterious. We, it's, 
implied that it's there and but it's like a mustard seed so he then he would lay out a some kind of explicit um reference frame so that the divine or the mysterious could be reflected off of it so the reality is there so that we can actually see the communion and the love that god is calling us into so like the whole point of knowledge should be love that's what we're aiming towards that's the end goal so that <laughs> when i started to think about this it, man it, especially like the news when you turn on the news anymore it's like you get programmed who you're supposed to hate today and it's just terrible it's it's like knowledge but it's not knowledge is pointing towards love at all it's uh something that it's so wrong to me i don't know it's hard to Put into words but well i haven't watched the news for about four years or five Good for years. you <laughs> but even even just i mean i have a very tightly curated twitter feed that's just dedicated to a handful of very important people for me in in terms of what i'm thinking about and then a few pastors but every once in a while some something something that's promoted will pop in there and it'll always be some right. political thing and and just the vitriol yeah <laughs> like, right i just want to go take a shower after i read <laughs> yeah so, um, especially if you isolate yourself from from it for a while you almost feel like dirty you get desensitized to it and then when you yeah. are re-exposed re after you separate from it for a while it's like whoa well i love this idea that the whole point of knowledge is love because and and i, I I mean, I know what I'm getting from that. I don't know what you're what you're actually saying, but I'm going to tell you what I get from it, and then maybe our viewers can also think about what they're getting from it. But to me, like, so before I started this channel, I had a long conversation with Paul Vanderclay, and that video is still out there someplace, I think. Um, I wonder how it holds up now after five years. <laughs> but one of the things I was thinking about at that time was how the entire universe consists of information or knowledge that um, every particle, the location and trajectory and speed of every particle and what all those particles constitute and what, what they make up and all of that is it's all knowledge to be gained, which is why we have science and and uh, history and philosophy and you know all these uh, domains of knowledge in other words there's an infinite amount of knowledge just waiting for us to discover it it's almost like a playground <laughs> it's like we could go out there and explore forever and find new things that we could bring back into we could find a lot of things out there in the unknown and bring them back into the known to kind of refresh things and continually be learning but we don't tend to look at that as the gift that it is i mean that the fact that all that knowledge is that it's like a, a an offering of love every single one of those things that a scientist discovers was an offering of love that was calling them forward saying here take a look at this you'll find something interesting here i promise right. you you know um, but we tend to think, oh, it's because we figured out there was something over there and then we figured out how to take it apart and analyze it. But but really, it's just this offering a gift of love coming to us. Right. 
and then our our left brain apprehends it rather than our right brain comprehending it so it becomes something that we can wield for financial gain or or whatever you know power so yeah that's a good way to put it though it's like those things are there but they're there that what my idea here is that it, they're there for love even language it says language is there but it will fade away it's there the logos everything is here for us to comprehend love that, that's mm -hmm. that's why we engage with it that's why we're supposed to engage with it i guess maybe mm -hmm. we should say that so <clears throat> i i think i told you i wanted to talk about a few stories that mm -hmm. um, and i picked three that i think everyone would know at least know of maybe they haven't read them They've seen the movies or something. so um lord of the rings by tolkien and uh, the space trilogy by c.s lewis and then dune by herbert they're all pretty popular i would think and they're all fiction too so i wanted to pick something that was fiction so this is how i see lord of the rings i see lord of the rings as a tale of two narratives right that there's one narrative that's explicit then that's the narrative of of sauron are you familiar did you i'm sure you read it or watched the movies or i read it long time ago okay. and i watched the movies about four times so, yeah. <laughs> okay so you should at least be able to track what i'm saying here yeah so so the ring from to me what the ring is is a frame it's a narrative and and through through that narrative sauron sees middle earth and the spell around the outside is what he thinks middle earth is it, it's all bound to him it's his narrative and that's the way he sees everything but then there's another narrative and that's the narrative that reaches outside of middle earth and comes down and that narrative is implicit it's not really described in the story to any depth, but the reader or the, when you watch a movie, you know, it's there. And that's really the narrative that matters. And everybody in the story is talking about that loosely, you know, like Sam's talking about Rosie in the Shire and, um, or when Gandalf dies, when Gandalf dies fighting the Balrog, he kills it, but it ends up killing him too. He's spent. But something above outside the story lifts him out, transfigures him into Gandalf the White, who's more powerful than Saruman. So there's there's a force outside the story that's directing things. Tom Tom Bombadil is another character that saves the hobbits a couple times when they're on their way to Bree. He gives the knife to Mary that's fashioned and made to kill the witch king which he uses on the plains in front of Minas Tirith so that whole that whole narrative out there something's directing all that so but it's implicit it's not it's not really described with any detail it's like loose and it's a mystery and you know it's there um when you get to this, 
Space Trilogy. What Lewis did there, he took the he took the the things that are implicit in our world, and in this story, he made them all explicit. So all of the supernatural creatures are discovered by ransom and i think i think it's interesting that he discovers them through through language his understanding of language so there there's a there's a connection to the language there i thought that was pretty interesting that was in the first book but do you see what i'm getting at with what lewis did well keep so, keep talking i i just read those last year and then of course i had a, i had a series on the meaning code about them mm -hmm. but um i've read a lot of books since <laughs> so okay my brain is all crammed up but I, I mean i do remember um ransom was a philologist so he was a student of of languages and that's what enabled him to learn the language when he got onto mars and then later venus i'm not quite clear on what you mean when you say the he he found these these um so in the first book he finds the uh horus i think they're called the otter-like people or animals kind of hybrids uh-huh and and so he learns their language and through that language then he starts to learn about their culture and he learns about the okay i see what you're saying yeah, yeah. so so that that led to him discovering things that are implicit to us so he even though he was from earth he didn't have any awareness to any of this but when he went there he was made aware of it so c.s lewis and he he made our implicit explicit he explained it all mm -hmm. in, his story, in his story so you see the difference what he did there i mean mm -hmm. that's that's so then well, isn't you, that isn't that partly why Tolkien and Lewis disagreed about um the way to tell these stories? I think Tolkien felt that maybe Lewis was too explicit in the way that he talked about things because Tolkien all, always sort of put things in the you know in uh He left them a mystery. Kind of leave, leave more to the viewer's imagination, I guess. Right. Yeah. Right. So that would be um, so. Movies today. Uh, that's why I think they've gotten so bad. Is they're explaining everything, but they're <laughs> explaining them in a way that it doesn't. It doesn't even make sense. So. Um, well, and then and it's just all propaganda. I mean. Yeah. yeah here, right. this is what you're supposed to know, and this is what you're supposed to believe, right. and these right. are the well, good people. <laughs> That's the danger, though, in what C.S. Lewis did, and um, we do we do that. And I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back here a little bit and kind of explain how I think that works. Um, but let me move on to Dune real quick, and I won't talk a lot about this. I started reading this book. When did that movie come out? Last year. Um, I read it a long, a long, long time ago, the first book. But anyway, I could not get through three books of this series. In Dune, absolutely everything is explicit and everything is a transhumanist point of view. And it's all fueled by drugs. It's The spice is how people can compute 
everything. They have the Mentats, they have the Space Guild. They 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 take the spice, it augments their abilities to be able to see everything and the relation between everything and then play out all the different um possibilities. And that's that's what governs their universe. And there's religion there, but it's religion that's been hijacked to control people. So well, see, I watched the first third of that movie when it came out and I, I just couldn't make it any further but but I would have never gotten any of that out of what I saw in the movie I mean the movie is just people kind of wandering around you know and in the <laughs> movies you have to read the book to get right it. it's a lot harder to catch catch all that in the movie but in the books it's it's like these people are just constant it's like you take game theory and psychedelics and you mash it together and you end up with dune you know it's like minds that are like hyper aware um but it's it's like that's kind of like where we're headed uh, but in wasn't this whole thing are. in dune that they stopped using computers a long time before because they saw the danger of it because they could do it with their minds and spice the spice was a drug that allowed their mind to do the same thing so their mind I could see. run the it could do what the ai was was doing before so, so, so does the spice kind of eliminate the inhibitions or or reduce um, the inhibitory? It it does different things to different people. So, like the the space guild, they can use the spice to look out into space and make sure there's no objects or no anything going to come in the path of the spaceship, and they can fold time and send the ship through without it colliding with anything. So they they pr they project the entire course of the ship across the galaxy. Wow. Right? So <laughs> then there's other there's other people that use the spice for like the I think what are they called mentats or something where they actually play out all these different scenarios um so that everything can be accounted for and then they they tell either whoever they're working for all the options. These are the three best options and this is the outcome of each one. So it's then they kind of pick which what to do. Then mm -hmm. there's a there's a kind of a quasi religious guild of all women, and they are controlling the genetics of everybody, so that they can create the Messiah to sit and that and that's Paul Atreides. So he is he is the main character that they create, at least in the first book. And then his offspring end up becoming like uh, God emperors. So. Hmm. It's it's a very transhumanist, very ex everything's explicit. It's like there's mm -hmm. there there is no room for mystery in this court in this universe at all, right? So of those of those three, Lord of the Rings is the closest to what we actually live in. So it I, I had a hard time reading um the this hideous strength the last the last book of this. It is hard. It is hard to get to, but. Did you get did you get at least a hundred pages in before you gave up? I re I went through the whole thing. Oh, and okay. I honestly that book I listened to and it's like, oh my goodness, I my mind would wander. It's like there's I just it wasn't something that captured me, but I did I did get through the whole thing finally. Yeah. Well, I think so. it's because it it's it's creating a the the world that it's creating is almost um Well, it's hard to put into words, but you know, 
sometimes you're in a situation where you you feel like things are so strange you just can't get a handle on what's happening because the people around you are they seem to be living on a different plane than you are and so you you just can't get a handle on what's happening have you ever had that experience where you've been in a situation where and I think that's the I think that's what he's trying to create there is that feeling because all of those people at the university there are living in a reality that they've created for themselves. Not not it's not the real world. And I mean it's exactly like the universities today, from what I from what I hear, although I haven't watched much news, I do hear people talking about the way the universities are collapsing and it's because everything becomes very unreal and you can't, you can't, you can't grab anything. You can't touch anything. You can't have this. Um, even though everything is supposedly explained, it's all explained in a way that's not connected to reality. So you're kind of in this nether world and, uh, and that's kind of the way that book feels to me. I've read it three times now. And every time I start reading it, I, I get this feeling like I've been plunged into a place that I, I have no grip. I have no grip at all. Especially when they start digging Merlin up and like, what is happening here? And yeah, you know, and I and I it's very hard for me to have any Usually so, when I read a book, I get relationship with the characters and then I care about what happens to them. But I don't feel that for any of the characters in that book. I don't care about Jane. I don't care about Mark. Yeah. Right. That was the um, same way. Because they're so foreign to me. Right. And yet I think that's what he's trying to say. Um, I think he's trying to build a world that's that foreign so then that when by the time it gets to the end and then you meet the people up there at St. Anne's and it's like, oh, OK, these people, I understand, you know, I feel I feel some comfort here and some warmth and some joy. Um, but that makes it very hard to get into that book. Yeah. And so how. So Dune is Dune is the transhumanist thing, and I kind of think of. I'll say it like this. Maybe it'll make sense. The space trilogy storyline and everything that happens there. It's kind of like fundamentalist religion in a way to me. So it's like when, when you take implicit things and then you try to make them explicit, it's like taking a, beautiful animal putting it in a cage putting it in a zoo to put it on display to consume it it, it completely loses what it actually is right so that's kind of what fundamentalism does it, it, when you take every single thing that's supposed to be a mystery and try to solve it and then make people believe this that's kind of what's going on in that institution do you see what I'm how I'm trying to put that together? Um, so you so think there's, that's what's happening in all three of the books or just in that hideous string? Well, I think in all, all three of them, it's kind of happening. Like the first two, I didn't see it as uh, 
like it, it was there in all three of them. I kind of saw that that that's what happens though, when you try to take things that are supposed to be a mystery and make them. So you take the, what's supposed to stay implied and then you try to capture it. It, it, it actually uh, taints it. So did you so, read, have you ever read till we have faces? <clears throat> No, no. Okay. <clears throat> as well. Yes. Uh -huh. yeah. He always said it was his best work. And uh, I had tried to read it a few years ago and just couldn't, couldn't get into it. But then I read it just recently and uh, really got captured by it. And that is one where, where it's so implicit that you're left wondering until the very end you're left wondering where where is this going and even at the end i mean it leaves a lot of questions but it really makes you think really really makes you think which is one of the things that i think makes it so so beautiful um but it's written about the time period of uh I, I don't know exactly what era it would be, but it would be sometime during the Middle Ages, I guess, um, early Middle Ages, maybe. And he just creates the atmosphere with such riches and uh, depth, and you can smell the smells, and you can hear the noises, and you can... You can see the images that he's creating as he's as he's planted these people in this era. Um, it's quite a remarkable book, and it's it's all about one person's journey. Yeah. And um, and and it's one of these things where I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard Jordan Peterson talk about how you can watch a movie and everything in the movie seems to be saying one thing and then you get to the very end of the movie and there's this little twist and that little twist at the end of the movie your brain just catapults back all the way through the whole film and you go oh oh no that meant that and that meant and then all the way back to the beginning and it kind of rewrites the whole story in your mind that's what happens to this one woman in till we have faces all the way through her life, you're hearing her story from her perspective. Mm. And then at the very end, you hear she herself gets this image of, oh, oh, I saw that. Oh, I saw that upside. And that was inside out. And oh, no. And and then it goes all the way, catapults you all the way back through the whole story. Um, Sounds like my life. Yes, it is. It's exactly <laughs> like a life. That's what's so powerful about it, because um, you go through the whole book thinking, well, I'm nothing like her and I would never be anything like her. You know? <laughs> and you get to the very end of the book and it's like, it's like oops. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, that's me. Well, let me uh, let me throw this one at you. So Lord of the Rings, I think a good story is something that you can actually take inside yourself so inside of me is middle earth and i have that ring of power 
that frame, that narrative, that person mm-hmm. you're just talking about in that story, that I see my world through that ring, through that frame, mm-hmm. through that narrative, mm-hmm. right? That's that's inside me. All the other characters are in there too, battling, you know? So what I, and I know I've told, talked to you about this before and it's hard to explain. Maybe this would be a good way to do it. So Adam and Eve are in the garden and they have access to God's vision. So it is the, it's the vision in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings that's outside this, you know, it's outside. It's, it's implied, but it's out there. God's of it. But in, in the garden, Adam and Eve were there. They were with God and they had that access. When Adam and Eve fell, they fell from God's vision all the way down to their own. And that's kind of that that tower inside me from Sauron's tower. That's how how we look at the world um, is skewed. It's skewed by our wants, our desires, our lusts, our pain, our longing, even good things. If we have longing for good things, but they're out of balance, they can skew how we look at everything. Does that make sense? <laughs> So. Beautiful description of my life. Yes. <laughs> well, it's as everybody's were, life. As you were Aaron. talking, I was picturing, I was picturing the frame of the ring, and then I was, you know, there's that that one scene in Lord of the Rings where Sauron is looking down into this underground where he's um, got all the orcs building his his you know what yep. territory or whatever, and then they're birthing the new orcs and they're digging these orcs up out of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> I spend an awful lot of my time manufacturing orcs. <laughs> that are fighting against me (laughs) right yeah don't we all so so that story resonates with me because of that there's a there's a but that that tower inside me has to come down and that narrative has has to be so you know i told you this before i'll share it again my Maybe I should back up a little more. When I was young, very young, and the whole reason why I'm so attached to creation, when I was like 10 years old, I started thinking about killing myself. I felt so unloved and just so unwanted. But when I would go out in the woods next to our house or play in the creek there, I would just get lost and I would find peace and it would renew me. And I know looking back on it that, God had me in the palm of his hand before I even knew him. And he was holding on to me, right? When my daughter was born, I remember holding her and just looking at her thinking, I cannot make her feel that way. There's just no way. I, I wouldn't let it happen, you know? So I started to look for answers. And that's how I ended up coming to Christ. And um, but when I I prayed to God that He would teach me how to love her, how to act, how to act towards her. But what I didn't realize at the time is that for me to love, to have that communion that I talked about in our last talk and we alluded to earlier, I had to let God fill me. 
he had to be the one in control. But for me to ha have that happen, I had to be poured out. And so that tower had to come down. And it was painful. There was, huh. wow, it was, um, you know how the Bible talks about generational sin and how that gets passed on. Both my brother and I became Christians and, and kind of as a transition generation to a, a new story now. And that all happened because of God, but all the, all of the stuff that, so I have like a foot in each generation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But I know, and I found out that that tower is still there. I mean, the, the, the rubble's still there. The ring's still there. Um, and I have the ability to reach for that again and pick that up and look through that frame, my frame again. That's um, one of the things about Lord of the Rings. Frodo is the hero. That's what everyone says. But Frodo didn't actually destroy the ring. He didn't destroy it. He couldn't destroy it. When he got to the chasm, he held it over the edge. And he said, it's mine. I'm going to keep it. He couldn't do it. I don't think we can do that either. I mean, God does it ultimately in the final version of me, that'll be destroyed. Mm -hmm. So there's a, that implicit truth that's in that story is just so powerful to me. It's so powerful because it resonates with me a lot. Um, and so. You mean you know, the, the fact that it's only through our relationship with, what's with outside. others. Well, with us, what's outside guiding yes. everything yes. and guiding those relationships with others. Yes. And so, yes. so I can relate with Frodo. I've been there with that ring, you know, and uh, I think I'll keep this right. I can identify with Sam and saying, I see the beauty in the world and I want to be part of it. It's almost like a childlike like view of, <laughs> of creation and everything, but it's good. It's not a bad thing to have. Right. But, you know, also like Aragorn, he's the king. So I play that role too. So I have all these different roles in my life that I play. You mm -hmm. know, so that's kind of like how I see the whole story there. It's a, uh, it, but it's a lot more richer than the space trilogy to me, or because everything is defined in my life. There were so many things that are, I don't know how, how it all worked out. I can even look back on some things and I just don't know. But there was some some hand in it that made it all work. <clears throat> so, um, I don't know if there's much more to say about these stories here. I don't know if you have anything to add. Well, let's say I think of your life as a painting and I think of my life as a painting. Because I, I mean, I have this, I have, I have the exact same struggle where I can have days when I feel entirely submitted to and in love with Jesus. And, and I understand, I just understand. And, and I'm, 
I feel radiant inside and out and I can love people. I have days like that. Well, I have, maybe I have hours like that <laughs> minutes sometimes, you know, but I also have days when, when I'm just holding on, when I'm just so desperately trying not to grab that ring now, like in my life, um, I always think of the ring as my desire for food because food has in my past and often in my future probably has a grip on me. My, both my parents were alcoholics and I have, I'm the generation that is not an alcoholic, but food has the same kind of an impact on me, especially sugar. And, and so that, that ring is like, I have days when I think if I got started down that road today, I would probably not stop. I would just keep barreling. I would just eat everything in the, I would just eat every sweet thing in the house. If I, if I let myself go and, uh, but I, I know that this is all a wrong, I'm not saying that this is the right way to do things. I know it's, I've done all the wrong things because that kind of addiction, um, there are ways to deal with that addiction, I guess, but um, because it's food, you have to eat food sometimes. So, so I've, I've tried to find a way to at least not, let it go to the point where I just can't stop. Right. So I, I have some limits, but then I still gain weight, even, even eating just moderate amounts, because I'm always just that little bit extra, just that little bit extra I want, you know? And, but if I think of our lives as a painting, one of the ways that I paint when I do art is um, I kind of mess things up and then I go in and I clean it up. And then I mess it up and then I clean it up. I mess it up and I clean it up. And what the final result of that makes for me in a painting is something that in my eyes, at least is so much richer and more complex than I could achieve if I just started with a white canvas and did everything right in the first place. First of all, I probably don't have the skill to do that, but I have seen people that do where they can make a perfect picture but in my, in my eyes, that perfect picture does not have as much beauty in it as a picture that's filled with scars and, and um, errors and repeats and fixes. And, and at the end, I think I end up with something that speaks more. And I kind of think that that's what happens with our lives. I mean, yes, we're not supposed to make the wrong choices, but when we do make the wrong choices, he makes a way for us to come back and then we have another test and we fail that test and he makes a way for us to have another test. And maybe we do a little bit better on the next test. And then maybe we fail the test after that, but he's always right. coming back and giving us, a, you know, a new, there's always a thread of hope. There's always a thread of hope. Yes. And that's, that's the beauty. Now, I mean, you look back at someone like Joseph Things happened to him, but most of the times he made the right choices when he was in that thing. So his life was marred by the things that happened to him. But there were pe people like David in the scriptures, a lot of the stuff he brought on himself, and he also brought it on other people. And yet God just kept faithfully working in him 
-hmm. because of his love, you know. So, um, yep. It's amazing, really. So I, I have had conversations like this, and the people that I've had the best conversations with have been people that uh, are in AA. Mm-hmm. And, and when I when I tell them this this how I see Lord of the Rings in this tower and and how the ring is there and it they understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But it it's really it's not really a drinking problem; it's a thinking problem. Yes. The fir- the first move is to grab the ring, and then the alcohol. You know, but if if it's you know for me, the probably one of the biggest things I struggle with is. Um, just isolating myself. I don't want to get hurt. Mm-hmm. So I go into the fortress that Sauron's in, and I just hide. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, it's hard to love people when you're in there. Well, and <laughs> but, that's the other thing yeah. about the ring. When you put the ring on, if you're just holding the ring, it has a certain draw, right? But if you put the ring on, you disappear. And I kind of feel like... Um, Living in denial is you put the ring on, then you can live in denial. And I, that's a real issue for me is that put the ring on. I can, I can feel like I'm invisible. The rules don't, the rules don't apply to me anymore. I can kind of do what I want to do because nobody can see me, but it's just living in denial because none of that is true because the consequences of that behavior always show up whether you're wearing the ring or not wearing the ring, right? So that, that's the pride. Mm-hmm. It was right at the garden at the beginning, and it's what's in me still. Mm-hmm. And um, so picking that up, it, you know, one thing, though, God has not let me hang on to it very long, fortunately, I guess but it's still always there. And I don't, I don't think we should ever under, underestimate the power that it has. You know, when we, we're in control instead of God being in control. Mm-hmm. And that, I, that's the other thing I wanted to bring into this conversation is that I don't, I don't want to, create my identity because I, I don't know what how to do it or, or what it should be. I want God to create my identity. I want I want him to build the final version of who I'm going to be and get me there. Help get me there. <clears throat> so the whole talk we had today was like I wanted to bring that into it because I don't want to I don't want people to think that this is something they have to figure out everything. It's it's not that at all. You can't figure out everything. Mm-hmm. You can't figure out all the steps to get there. You don't even know who you're going to be. And, you know, it's like sounds like that story. What is it? I, I should read that um, about faces. So, Till we have faces. Till we have faces. Yeah, right. There's a. I, I, if you're interested, if you like listening to books on on tape. There's a guy who has a YouTube channel and he read the whole book on his YouTube channel one chapter at a time. Huh. And he's um, 
I guess he's a maybe an amateur actor or something, but he did a beautiful job reading it. And that's that's the way I read it the first time, and then I read then I read the text afterwards. But um, yeah, I I can put that in the in the notes. What were you going to say about that then? Oh, it's just I think it would be something worth reading, just to have another perspective. But again, like uh, coming back to the implicit and the explicit, I, I know, <clears throat> and you probably have run into this as well, this different personality types process differently. They gather it differently. So mm -hmm. there are people that are highly sensory oriented and a lot of the engineers that I've worked with, men especially, uh, they they kind of fall into this game into this category. It, they have to see it to believe it, right? So that that kind of their left brain, and they're going to be more explicit information oriented. So I'm more right brain and more intuitive. So I can remember trying to describe, it sounds so silly, but I had a, I had a drawing of, of a, of a part of a machine we were going to integrate and the company we were going to buy it from was going to supply it just the way it was designed, but an opposite hand version of it. And that guy could not imagine that he could not imagine that machine being mirrored around because he couldn't see it. It, it was it was quite a strange experience I had, but there's a lot. I mean, he's he was extreme, almost like in the autistic realm, maybe a little bit. <clears throat> but I think you can kind of see that in some of the conversations that, like, I think Sam Harris is that way. I, I don't think Sam Harris can intuit things very well. Everything's sensory. It's got to see it. It's got to be explicit. Got to you know. Um, but other people, like I think Jordan Peterson has a lot of intuition and he sees, mm -hmm. he sees into things a lot deeper. Mm -hmm. So, um, but one of the, I, I know I, I, uh, had talked to you about this before, but I, I came across a video. I, I tried to find it before and I couldn't, but it, it was back up. So it's on YouTube and it's about, um, and I want to kind of bring this back to communion and, and how, being a learning how to train horses really changed my perspective on on how how we can be in communion with nature with creation and with people um but i think the last time i kind of tried to explain this i might have went too far to make it almost maybe made it sound like uh, like turn this knob pull this lever you know it was like uh trying to balance out your intentions and your communication and your action so that you could find that harmony with the other person. But um, I, I don't, I don't know if that was the best way to describe it. So I thought maybe I would just show it. Cause I think that really what we're doing is we're dancing with it. We're dancing with another person in communion. It's not really a, because it's always different and sometimes you lead and sometimes they lead it's uh it's like um 
it's like catching a butterfly. I remember when I was a young boy trying to catch butterflies. And every time you try to catch them, you'd hurt them. You couldn't really catch them, even with a net or whatever. You'd screw up their wing or something, and you know it. So it's like it, it, it's just something you you hold in your hand. It's a it's not something you can grasp. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try and share this and see if it works. Um, let me do this. Well, if it doesn't, I've also got it pulled up on my, on my screen. So can you see it? Yes. Uh huh. Okay. So this is uh this is, I think, 2006, maybe. So the video quality is not very good because the phones weren't good then. But this is what's called a reigning competition. Uh, and it's a national competition. Um, I'm going to see if I can. I don't know if Did I you one. say rating as in R-A-I-D-I-N? Reigning, like. Um, oh, reigning. Like, oh, like a horse's reins. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Can you see that picture? Or is it, is it yes, just on yes. the. Uh -huh. Yeah, so, I can. So, so this is the normal, um, they call it tack, but the, the gear you'd have on the horse, you'd have the saddle and the blanket and you have the reins and you'd have the bit and the headstock. Mm -hmm. You have, you have the, um, the headstall here that goes around the head, the chin strap. So when you, when you pull on these reins, it actually puts leverage on the bottom. That's a lever there in the bridle. Mm -hmm. It actually puts pressure on a horse's lower jaw and so that's how you control them. So you, you can turn them, you can, you can back them up. There's, you know, it's how you stop the horse. So they, they started doing competitions where people would like see how good they could get with the reins on the horse and, and see uh, how responsive the horse could get. And so this video I'm going to show is a reining competition, but this young woman shows up to this competition with no saddle, no bridle, no reins. So she's in a reining competition and has no reins at all. Oh, oh, so when I watched the video, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So that it's that really changes it. So everybody it? else that's been in the competition has had the full tack. Right. Wow. So she's did that shut it off? I don't want the oh, no, music no. to do still yeah, there's no music. Yeah. Okay. So here she comes with the horse and no she has absolutely no tack mm -hmm. at all. So in our video, we talked. Do you see the horse licking its lips? Can you see it licking its yes, lips? Yes, yes, I can. Uh huh. When you but, do but something, the horse is also doing that beautiful whatever that step is where they go sideways. And... Yeah, that yeah, it's called side passing. So it um, that horse when it licks it, its lips is acknowledging that you communicated with it. Hmm. So they're communicating to each other. She's not saying a word. And look what she gets this horse to do. It's pretty fascinating to me. Now, I actually could do this with my horse, not anywhere near the skill level of this woman, though. She's in the horse, too. The two of them together is amazing. Well, we probably don't get to see the whole video, but towards the end, no. it's the horse running so fast and then stop on a dime. yeah that's what i'm going to do here i'm just going to go to that okay. so this is and then she gets it to back up straight which is so there's all these different moves they have to do in this competition and she did them all and she got a perfect score out of this
So, uh-oh, there we go. Sorry. So there's a predator standing on a prey animal's back, waving its arms around, and the horse doesn't care. <laughs> I think that's amazing. Well, I, I have to tell you, honestly, when I watched this video in preparation for today, I was in tears by the end of it. Because I was thinking, what would it be like to, um, to be so one with Watch a horse walk with her. There's no coercion. There's no force. It's looking at its lips. It wants to be with her. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that's the feeling I got through the whole thing, is that the yeah. horse was was not being coerced, was not being managed, but right. this was a, a relationship of love. <clears throat> and the, <clears throat> the horse has something to give her, and she has something to give the horse. Right. And so the there's a other. there's a communion here. There's actually agape love here. And, th and and when I started training horses, but it's this style of training that I did. Now, if you just went and learned how to, you know, and somebody didn't understand a lot of this, what she did was learn how to communicate in the horse's language, which is body language. When I when I would ride my horse and we were in an arena like that, we'd run in a circle, you know, go into the corner just how I would position my body and I would just look where I wanted to go. I didn't have, I didn't have reins on her. I had a halter and just a rope, but I didn't use it. And I would just look and my horse would go where I'd look. It, it was so in tune with my head position. Now, if I, if I sat up straighter, it wouldn't do that. It's I had to lean forward and look, and then that's when the horse knew. So I wanted to share that because this kind of is, if you were looking at this just from the explicit point of view and what's going on here, it's a woman and a horse and, you know, but it's, uh, it's so much more because the, what's implicit there is that was a symphony of proper relational decisions over time. The two of them were in agape for a long period of time. They, they learned how to communicate with each other. So <clears throat> when I, when I went, um, let me back up a little bit. So my dad and I, when, when, when I was younger, we had a very strained relationship but when I came, became a Christian and I started to really like have my world kind of tore down, I was able to start communicating with him with the language that he spoke, which wasn't the same language I spoke. And, and, and through all that, I learned that um, he was showing me love when I was young, but not the way I wanted it. And so my view of what it should be kept it from happening. And his view of what it, he, he didn't pay attention to what I needed. Mm -hmm. you, you see how that worked. Mm -hmm. So after I became a Christian and, and him and I had, I started to learn how to dance with my dad, how to, how to learn how to dance with him. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we really, we, we really grew close 
over the years. And it, it was, it was beautiful. We ended up moving next door to him. We had a farm. He was right there and my kids got to know him. And, and, uh, and I really saw that soften him over the years. Um, when I, um, I don't know. It was in 2012. He, uh, I had a dream about him. And uh, a few weeks after I had that dream, I was in his uh, workshop and I was talking to him and, and I could tell something was wrong and I could tell this coming on for a while. And maybe it's, uh, but I actually talked, to him and he he shared with me that he didn't want to live anymore mm. and, and so he said he didn't feel loved and i like dad you don't I, I love you do you know i love you and he started crying and he's like you're the only thing that keeps me going on <clears throat> and the dream i had two weeks before that was i found him dead two weeks after we had that talk I actually did find him dead in his house. And that, that, that left so many questions in my mind. Cause when, when I talked to him, I told him, you need Christ to carry you. You need Christ's love. He, he's the one that can carry you through this. And I didn't have another talk with him before he died to know if he really got there you know so that whole experience that that put me into a like an aviation term would be like a spiritual stall <laughs> and then ultimately a flat spin guy didn't i i thought i had a right to know you know mm-hmm. and uh we but we had horses then and uh we had a little small horse was born on our farm and it needed to be trained. And that's the horse that I actually, it was a year after my dad died. I took that horse into that arena and started learning how to train it. And, and this experience that I just showed you with this woman is what snapped me out of that. What snapped me out of that because I had that. I, it's like, I learned how to dance again and it, it's like, I would, how, how would you ever, how would you ever like write a story like that? You know what God did and how he worked through my life. So there's, there's implicit truth that was in that, in that relationship with that horse that brought me back, you know, and it's kind of like, we all have access to that and we have access to that with each other. And I dance with people, not all the time not physically dancing, but, you know, spiritually dancing with them and trying to learn how can I commune with this person? And sometimes they're total strangers, but I don't know. I think there's a lot, there's a lot to learn if you look at the world through kind of the idea of the implicit and the explicit and what you can see and what you can't see. And what, what does God implying in, in, in the situation you're in. 
And what can you learn from it? And can you see the reflection off of the explicit of the glory of God in this situation? Because that's what knowledge is for. That's what it's for. It's for being able to navigate communion properly. And if that's not the outcome, then something isn't working right. So, and my friend Dave that died, you know, that was another person I danced with. I, you know, I think I emailed you and told you about that. That was his son died. His son died. He he actually dated my daughter, his son, and uh, he ended up becoming a Christian. His son did, and he told his dad. He said, "Listen, if you want to see me again, you have to you have to accept Christ. You have to promise me you're going to at least try." And he did, and and because of that, him and I ended up in this dance together, <clears throat> and he. Uh, he was so, understandably so, just why? Why God? If, why would your God, he would ask me this, why would your God take my son from me? And I had no answers for him, you know? And in the middle of all this, as I'm dancing with this man, uh, my dad died. So then I had the same kind of questions he did. And then the horse came into this. And so it's like, it's not a path I would ever choose, but it's beautiful because of, in fact, when I think about it, it overwhelms me how much God's love was in the middle of all of it, in the middle of all of it. But when I came out kind of at the other side, it's like, I don't have a right to know. I don't have a right to know. Mm -hmm. That's God. That's God's business. I couldn't understand it and I wouldn't choose the right thing anyway. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of implicit truth that was buried in this whole story that I went through. So I don't think we should overlook its importance. Let me see if I have a picture of my horse. I think I found one the other day. Me and my horse. Yeah, when my when my brother died. <clears throat> That's my horse and me. <laughs> there's a there's a lot there in that picture. Yes, a lot, and and the knowledge of the story I told you like really makes that picture understandable. That kind of like brought me back from the edge. What about your brother? I'm sorry. I was I just was going to say my brother died in 1986. Um, I had just gone to. Japan as a missionary and I'd had many conversations with my brother about faith and he was always very hostile um he was very much a materialist atheist and um so he died in a small plane crash and I was in Alaska and I didn't have even the I didn't have the funds to go to, he lived in Alaska. I didn't have the funds to go to the funeral or anything. So it was a really, really, really hard time. Like, what does this all mean? You know, I mean, I've just given up everything at home and gone to Japan to be a missionary. And, and I had so longed for my brother to know the same 
good news, you know, that I had learned and, and I had absolutely no assurance that, you know, I mean, I could make up stories for myself that as the plane was going down, he remembered something, you know, I had no idea, but right. after about six months of wrestling with that, the, the only conclusion I could come to, but it's also been a conclusion that has held me through everything else since was that God is good and whatever happened there, it happened out of the goodness of God and God, I mean, whatever happened with my brother's final destination wow. is out of the goodness of God. And I really believe that God is good and whatever decision God made was good. And that has, you know, when, when, when the ring is not my frame, that is my frame. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so, so I, I can choose which frame to look through. <clears throat> um, but I, I had a talk the other day that's not going to publish until closer to the end of December with a young man who's just made a huge breakthrough. And part of that breakthrough was, trying to look back through life and seeing yourself as the child and God as the father. And what, what is as, as the father, what is God telling you as a child in that moment, even thinking back to a childhood when you felt rejected and, and lonely and abandoned and to see yourself as that child and to actually see God there with you, loving you. And the conversation I had with him had such an impact on me that, that I've been dwelling with that a lot in the last few days. Um, just thinking about the little girl that I was and the decisions that I made to protect myself from those feelings of rejection and abandonment set me on a path of of habits and patterns that were destructive but but maybe there was a coherent reason for me to make those decisions but i don't have to live with those decisions anymore because i can look back and i can see yes god was there with me and he was loving me and he was seeing the little girl that i was and not he was not abandoning me or betraying me in that situation, right? He was right, right. there with me. And it has really um, renewed my heart of worship and of wanting to spend more time in his presence. And um, yeah, so <clears throat> and so the, for everybody to hear that conversation. Yeah, that sounds great. It's uh, God carries us from being victims to being victorious, you know, and I'm not, I'm not just talking about victims from people oppressing us victims mm -hmm. of my own, my own vices and <laughs> schemes and how we can overcome that. It's uh, but that, that I think that's all found in the implicit. It's not something you can, you can find in a, you know, in knowledge you can, put in a cage because mm -hmm. every everyone's story is different and everything you know what i need and what i believe i need 
they're worlds apart. They're, they're <laughs> so, you know, that's the, like the hope that we talked about earlier, that thread of hope that pulls us forward. It's like knowing, knowing that we're going to get there makes it possible mm -hmm. to, to keep moving forward and knowing, and I know, I mean, not that I would recommend like <laughs> going into a flat spin spiritually, but even if you do, God will bring you out of it. Mm -hmm. he, did, he did me. So very thankful and grateful for everything he's done to, to the point where it overwhelms me. Sometimes it's hard to, I'm surprised I actually got through this because I thought it was going to be a lot harder <laughs> to to not keep my composure, not because I'm sad, because I get overwhelmed by it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so amazing to see what he's done, you know. But that suffering is all in there. It's all wrapped up in it. The pain's all part of it. And without that, I, I wouldn't be who I am. So... That tower had to come down, that ring. <laughs> That's a Well, I'm very thankful for who you are, Brad. <clears throat> oh, thanks. Um, our conversations are very meaningful to me. And and also the fact that you're very loyal to friendship. So you don't just take it as a one-off, oh, let's go do this thing on the YouTube or something. Yeah. You actually keep in touch with me and um, and you actually care about the people who are listening and and that's all part of it too you know that god has right. made you a person who you ever read the velveteen rabbit <laughs> a long time ago yeah yeah vaguely yeah. remember it well velveteen rabbit doesn't become real until all its fur gets rubbed off that <laughs> <laughs> so sounds like fun <laughs> so you know, you made me just think of something, though. I'm going to share it here. I have a really, really hard time with the Internet. So I can dance with people. I can dance with that horse. You know, I can be in nature. I can feel like I'm one with creation and God's there with us and are with me, you know. And But on here, I have a hard time. I have a really hard time. You're the only person I've really, really connected deeply with. And I don't know, maybe because we talked, but... Um, it's just, it's so, it's so, it's, I feel blind. You know, it's like, even now I got a camera here and you're there. I want to look at your eyes, but I want you to know I'm paying attention to you. So I can't do both at the same time. It's just like, uh, what I do with the horses, you know, and, and when I, when I engage with other people, so much of it isn't words. It's not words. Some of the most the moments where I felt the most connected with another human being. And I'm not talking I mean, like my friend, Dave, when his son died, when I went to the funeral home, volumes were spoken between us and we never said a word to each other. Mm -hmm. I held him in my arms and he cried for like two minutes straight, just bawling his eyes out. Mm -hmm. And we just parted ways. And I stopped down to see him a few days later and, so it's not, it's not, it's not the explicit meanings found in the implicit things. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for me to find the implicit things on here. Mm 
I don't know why I just struggle with it. So mm -hmm. and I don't know. Well, I you think know, it's it's because they're because they have to be abstracted first. They have to be pulled up, abstracted, sent out over the airwaves, and then pulled <laughs> down and yeah. un unwound inside of us. You know, it's it's a. So, it's so the the implicit the implicit things are are reflected off of the explicit, and this is like another layer. So it's like a reflection of a reflection or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. just another, like Peugeot would call it another layer of skin. So yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think, I think there's a lot of good things happening. It's just hard for me to participate in it for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you participate here. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thank you for having me on. I really like talking to you. Oh, this and, was, and, this was a terrific conversation and, and, um, I had no idea it was going to go where it did, but I'm thankful. Uh, yeah, me too. I. How do you explain implicit things without taking go too far with it? Well, you, you know? can't. Once you explain yeah. it, it's not implicit anymore. Right. So. I mean, this is why I've always said I think creativity is so vital to humanity, because every person has has some aspect of creativity that they can express whether it's in designing machinery or sewing or cooking or gardening or um painting or writing or doing poetry um and then that creativity ex it brings out what's implicit in that individual out into the world to share with others because the implicit parts of us are what are so deeply in us that we can't articulate them but they're part of what god has woven into us and that needs to come out into the mainstream and shared with everybody so that we all get the full picture of this the beauty that god is creating right but yes. if people either are too busy or too afraid to find a creative expression then we never get to see that side of them because you can't Bring the minute you bring that stuff out and try to put it into words, it loses its. Um... Yeah, you said something in our last talk. Uh, what was it? Let me think. It was uh, a, a truth once spoken becomes a lie. That's what this Russian lady told me one time. Yeah, and right. I don't so... know what it actually means, but I know <laughs> what it came to mean to me. Yeah. What does it imply, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, there's a I mean, lot. And I think that's because once we start speaking, our filters get engaged and then our filters change it even as it's coming out of our mouths. Because maybe I'm looking at your face and I see you looking a little bit askance and I think, well, maybe he doesn't want to hear it that way. And so I shift a little bit and then, you know, and then I hear it myself and I think, well, that's not quite right. And I shift it a little bit more and. By the time it gets all out there, it's not what I meant in the beginning. You know? So right. I think we can have a lot of implicit <laughs> truth in us that just can't be explained verbally. Right. right. Because you, like you just said it, as soon as you say it, it it's, it's explicit now. Implicit becomes explicit. So yeah. we can show it though. We can show it. And, yeah. and that's, that's the whole idea of this you know, like dancing. It's mm -hmm. it's like it's it's not it's not about telling people. It's about showing them. And being in that relationship, the relationship 
reveals the implicit because that's what the implicit is it's the it's the it's a communion well that's what i got from that film of the woman and the horse was the the beauty and the power that comes from that kind of a, a friendship or a communion mm -hmm. that neither one could experience without the other right right now yeah. the horse even if the horse could think the way we think it probably had no idea it could accomplish those things it would never do it on its own would right? never do it on its own right and certainly without the horse she could never accomplish those things and so the two of them together there's not only this vision of beauty that's going on but but there's a power there and um uh, yeah i was in tears the first time i watched that video so thank Good. you for bringing it to me. <laughs> I have somebody showing up at the house, and I got okay. But this has been great, Brad. Yeah. Thank you so much for getting in touch with me. And You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Wonderful Christmas. Do you, you have too. Do you have family coming for Christmas? Um, our family's all here, so yeah, we'll we'll get together. It's kind of hard because everyone's going different places, you know, with yeah. kids and everything. But yeah, we'll get we'll have we always have a good Christmas. So I hope you have a good Christmas too. We will. Yeah, my uh, I have one daughter that lives in the area and then my other daughter's coming back for Christmas. So I'm very much looking forward to having them both here. And my granddaughter's gonna be with us too, so it's gonna be really good. All right. Awesome. Okay. Have a great All right, day. we'll see you. Bye bye. Bye.